Throughout my time researching this podcast, there was one theme that kept popping up. Whether it was immigration or sexual politics, I kept being drawn back to this issue. That being imperialism and colonialism. These are concepts people have heard about before, but I'm not sure many people could tell you in depth what they mean. As I'm writing the script essay for this episode, I'm typing out imperialism slash colonialism. But these are technically separate things, though they often work hand in hand with each other. According to Miriam Webster, imperialism is the state policy, practice, or advocacy of extending power and dominion of a nation, especially by by direct territorial acquisitions or by by gaining indirect control over the political or economic life of other areas. Meanwhile, according to the Oxford Dictionary, colonialism refers to the policy or practice of acquiring full or partial political control over another country's settlers and exploiting it economically. If your first thought is, that sounds like the fucking same, that's because both concepts often work together better as that is when they are most successful. Imperialism is a country extending its influence and gaining control over other countries either through force, diplomacy, or economically. While colonialism is the direct occupation of a land and subjugation of its people. If imperialism is the idea of an empire, then colonialism is the direct action in a physically building one. If we want to come up with an example for what the those things are, we just need to look at our own country. Manifest Destiny it was a cultural idea that it was the divine right of the U.S. to expand its borders to the western region of North America. Through American settlers conquering the wild and untamed land. In essence, it was the idea of expanding America and empire's borders to acquire new land and resources, which could be examples of U.S. imperialism. While the westward expansion and settlers think something along the lines of Little House on the Prairie could be thought of as an example of U.S. colonialism as that's the actual physical conquering at that land. If you're thinking, wait, that land wasn't untamed. There was indi- Oh, I see where you're going with this. Well, bingo. Often why imperialism and colonialism get a bad rap is that those concepts often lead lead to the subjugation of a group of people for their land and resources, which can lead to their their mistreatment and the enforcement of a social hierarchy that puts them at the very bottom. For an empire to happen, you often need someone else to do the dirty work of actually building it. If America and fulfilling their divine right of expanding the U.S. borders meant taking the land of indigenous people, then so be it. Imperialism and colonialism have the global ramifications throughout history. The reach is so massive that nothing exists or has existed within our world that has not been touched by it to some capacity, including Asian American and Pacific Islander women. And that's where this episode starts. Hi, my name is Camille Montano, and this is Asian American Feminism in Training. A critique of feminism that I and many other people have is how some feminists will try to universalize certain issues, which is basically making the claim that something is applicable to everyone around the globe equally, which of course can exclude many people depending on what that universal definition is. This doesn't 
this doesn't just apply to the idea that feminism is defined as liberation for white, straight, cisgendered, educated, middle-class enough women, but specifically Western women. That being women from Europe or the U.S., which are thought in the global perception to be progressive, rich, and majority white nations that are superior to backwards or primitive nations. Now, of course, this isn't just the idea of prioritizing the voices of women who meet those standards, but the idea of conceptualizing the problems for different women's issues, be it sexual violence, reproductive justice, economic justice, etc., as being the exact same thing around the globe, thus the same solutions being able to apply to all women, no matter their race, ethnicity, gender identity, or expression, sexual orientation, class, or country of origin. It should probably only take someone a few minutes of critical analysis to understand the problem with universalizing problems and solutions like that. I am a Filipina-American woman, and the problems that affect me are not the same ones that affect a Filipina woman who lives in the actual country. Hell, from stories I've heard from my mother, things as universal as neighborhoods, holiday gifts, or poverty are extremely different in the Philippines than it is in the U.S. Even the racial category of Asian American slash Pacific Islander, something you'll see on any job resume, universalizes the experiences of the many women who technically fall under that category, reducing complex and nuanced lives into a weird checklist. Hell, even putting together Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders is kind of a problem that even I perpetuate. Throughout not just this podcast, but all of my other work involving Asian American women, I'll usually refer to them as either AAPI women for Asian American Pacific Islander, APA women for Asian Pacific American, or just Asian American with the mentality of including Pacific Islander women. However, Those two groups are super not the same. During my research for this episode, I found that there are Pacific Islander scholars who argue it is incorrect to group Pacific Islander women with Asian American women because their experiences, specifically with how they experience certain aspects of oppression, are very different. Activist, and I'm so sorry if I butchered these names, Stephanie Nohilani Taviz and Mali Arvin argue that Pacific Islanders are not AAPI people, but indigenous people. They say, what kind of intellectual and political work is necessary to dislodge the demographic grouping and supposed coalition between Pacific Islanders and Asian Americans so that that we can have conversations about the ongoing legacies of settler colonialism, anti-blackness, capitalist accumulation, and white supremacy that continue to divide indigenous people and communities of color. Specifically, what kind of methodologies and strategies are necessary for women of color feminisms broadly and Asian American feminism specifically to interrogate their own tendencies to gloss the Pacific and its people as Asian American in possessions alongside their own liberal attempts to include our histories and cultures. What is necessary to change the current conversation or lack thereof? 
An excellent example of the difference is when they bring up the sexualization of Pacific Islander women. Now, if you want to know how Asian American women are sexualized, go listen to episode 4. Essentially, it boils down to the submissive male-order bride prostitute. For Pacific Islander women, while they are exoticized, it's not the same. Pacific Islander women have been thought of as untamable, wild, and savage women who live in a tropical and sexual wonderland, which, from other forms of research I've had to do over the years, is a lot closer to how indigenous women in from the U.S. mainland are sexualized. Heck, if you read anything about the Native Hawaiian fight for land rights after U.S. colonialism at the Hawaiian Islands, it's a lot more similar to mainland indigenous activist fight for land rights. Even Pacific Islanders' perception of gender and sexuality is a lot more closer to that of indigenous people than it is to Asian Americans. None of this is to say, though, that Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders should not fight for equality and equity together. Not help, we're always going to be lumped into the same category. What I am saying is that while we might fight for the same goals in the abstract sense, when we get into the nitty-gritty, the journey to those goals might be very different. The problem of feminism that is Western bias is that it does not just erase or oversimplify the breadth of experiences in Asian American women, Pacific Islander women, but conceals the material causes for their oppression in the U.S. and abroad. Asian women have been affected by imperialism, colonialism, and Western bias throughout history. For example, when the U.S. colonized the Philippines, they did so under the policy of benevolent assimilation, as if that's a thing, which argued that they would be bringing the Filipino people rights and liberties by taking over the country, essentially, including the building of nursing schools. Even after the U.S. left and the Philippines gained independence, the Filipino economy took a really long time to stabilize due to decades of U.S. rule which meant many Filipino women were underpaid, even those with Western nursing training. So when the U.S. faced a nursing shortage after World War II, they created a visa program that made it easy for Filipino nurses to immigrate to the U.S., where they still were underpaid and faced labor mistreatment, but they were afraid to unionize and fight for their rights due to the fact that they were afraid of losing their visas and being deported back to a country that paid them even less. The reason for that can be traced to U.S. colonialism of the Philippines. An historical event such as the dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos, which caused severe economic downturn for the country, which it has never really been able to recover from. Seeing that Filipina nurses were sending money back to the Philippines from the U.S., the government encouraged nurses to leave the country for U.S. and other countries. All of this caused a nursing shortage that continues to this day, even in the middle of a pandemic. At the center of all of this is Filipina nurses whose labor was exploited for years, and they faced severe discrimination before finally they unionized and fought back for better rights. Yeah, reading about U.S. and European history feels like a game of who wasn't fucked over at some point. While the Philippines is just one example, it kind of goes to show why historically transnational feminism has always been an important aspect of Asian American feminism. 
Transnational feminism is essentially feminism that primarily is interested in feminist organizations, networks, and movements occurring outside and beyond individual nation states at the transnational level. Basically, what happens to a group of women in one country is important to another. However, it should also be acknowledged that those lives and viewpoints will be different from one another at the same time. For Asian American feminists, historically, you can see this interest in the plight of Asian women globally. For early Asian American feminists, the people they modeled themselves on were not white U.S.-born feminists, but ones from foreign countries such as China and Vietnam. The first big conference created by Asian American feminists was the Vancouver Indo-Chinese Women's Conference that was primarily formed by third world feminists who worked with Indo-Chinese women to fight U.S. imperialism, talking about many topics that were more of an interest to women and from foreign countries than the U.S. In my opinion, I believe that the importance of transnational and third world feminism within Asian American feminism is that for many, the consequences of imperialism and colonialism do not feel like history. The backstory I gave about Filipino nurses mostly took place in the latter half of the 20th century, as the Philippines didn't gain independence from the U.S. until 1946. This is especially true when you take into consideration that Due to immigration restrictions, Asian women are a relatively new group to the U.S. Many current Asian American women are immigrants and, because of those strong ties, care about what happens in their country of origins, especially to the women in them. Hell, I'm a first-generation kid who can't speak Tagalog, yet I still care about the fact that the current president of the Philippines is basically a sociopathic dictator, and the next one might be the son of Ferdinand Marcos. Which, I'm not sure if it's just irony, the continued consequences of U.S. imperialism, or God deciding to fuck with my people. Either way, it's kind of messed up. Which, honestly, could be the tagline for this entire episode. Imperialism and colonialism have always been important to Asian American feminists. Due to the legacies of imperialism and colonialism on their countries of origin, and which affect them to this very day, especially the women who still live in those countries. Yet an important aspect of transnational feminism within Asian American feminism is the acknowledgement that these issues will differ among different groups of women depending on where they're from. That it's important to listen to the, her concerns and see how to help them, knowing full well that different solutions will be needed. That's why it's important we learn about the problems Pacific Islanders face if we want to help them. Yet that shouldn't deter us from building coalitions to fight for both of our issues, as Asian Americans in the U.S. and globally and Pacific Islanders are fairly small groups. We need each other if we even have a chance at fighting back. Now, before I go, I'll leave you with a quote from Delia de Aguilar an Asian-American feminist who, after a semi-failed attempt at a program to educate foreign-born Asian women in feminism, realized the limitations of Western-based feminism. She had this to say, It was heartening to see that women could have their eyes wide open to the cleavages separating women and still remain 
and committed to the search for a common ground for feminist solidarity. Here, awareness of multiple standpoints did not appear to weaken the presumptions of mutual agreement. In effect, solidarity as both a guiding principle and a goal was assumed, differences notwithstanding.